Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Yeah. You know, that is the age-old question. Do you want to change that about yourself? And are you willing to do what it takes? Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen. She's a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And I help, oh, I help navigate sex addicts, and partners through this arduous process so that you can get healthy, you can feel in control, and you will know that you can manage your life. And that in and of itself can be a tough thing. And so I have to tell you, i got a formula, especially for you. Um, so oftentimes, I get people that either call the show or they write the show and they discuss what their issues are. And last week, we had a partner who said, hey, I just don't feel safe. Her name was Angela. I don't know if I should move out or if I need an in-house separation. And I said, well, what would you need to feel safe? And initially, she was identifying things that she wanted the addict to do for his own recovery. And I reminded her, I said, you know what, we need to come up with boundaries and or consequences that will affect how you feel about your own sense of safety, security, and stabilization. And so I said, what do you need to feel safe? And Angela said, I couldn't come up with 25 things, but I want you to know that I really felt like my husband needed to attend more meetings. And I heard you say that when somebody is acting out all the time and they can't seem to find sobriety, before you recommend a treatment center, 
you suggest 90 meetings in 90 days. So I feel like I would be more secure and safe if my husband put more time in the recovery program. And I guess, even though I know deep down inside, that benefits him. My belief is I would feel safer like he is putting in the work that I need my partner to put in to make me feel safe. She also felt like her husband needed to participate in my 10 recovery tools. Now, you may wonder, what are those recovery tools? And what I believe to be true is that an addict in good recovery needs to be following at least eight of these 10 recovery tools, and they are go to meetings, whether that be SAA, comma, SA, comma. Now, you may not know the difference between those two, but SAA is Sex Addicts Anonymous. And they allow you to customize a program that fits your needs. Whereas Sexaholics Anonymous, SA, is an organization that believes that there are certain things that you have to abstain from if you're going to stay in good recovery, like masturbation or like lust, you know, which other programs call objectification. So, again, if you're somebody who believes in the 12-step sesh, you may want your partner to go to Sexaholics Anonymous, Sex Addictions Anonymous, Recovery Nation, an online group for coaching. You may want him to go to Every Man's Battle um, or another religious group that absolutely customizes their work for sex addicts or people with what we call compulsive problematic sexual behavior. Now, if they're going to go to a meeting, they need to attend regular meetings, and hopefully you and your therapist can figure out about how many you need to start out with, have a mentor, a guide, or a sponsor, Read whatever the book is or the informational sheets that a program gives you. Do the 12-step work or, you know, again, if you're doing online recovery through Recovery Nation, you're going to want to do their homework and you're going to want to contact a coach. And then last but not least, develop some fellowship strategies. And that is creating some relationships with people who are in the program that can share their hope, strength, and recovery with you, and you can share hope, strength, and recovery with them. Okay, those are the first five. The other five is that you see somebody who has been credentialed to work with problematic compulsive sexual behavior or sex addiction or partner trauma. That might be through access. But you need to work with somebody who has that credentialing so that you don't waste your time and you get the biggest bang for your buck. An addict should be in a therapy group, if at all possible, whether it be a therapy group face-to-face or a therapy group online. And you can, again, go to two major websites, uh, ITAP, I'm sorry, Sexo. 
itap.com, which is the itap certification, or APSAP, specialists that um, are both partner-sensitive and sex addiction savvy. Now, you need to be able to read inspirational materials and or recovery materials other than the green book or the white book or recovery nation. You need to be able to journal, meditate, or pray. And you need to have accountability features available to you. Maybe that's a GPS on your car or your phone. Maybe that's a filter on your phone. Maybe that's covenant eyes. Maybe that's canine. Maybe that's taking polygraph tests. Whatever it takes to help you to make good choices, especially starting out. This is not to micromanage you, but it's actually to help you work through tough process of sex addiction recovery. Because sex addiction is by far the toughest addiction to work through. And that's why partners need to know what to do that will make them feel safe. Now, Angela says, I need to participate in a Bible study every day so that I can reinforce my faith. I need the addict to be honest about his slips or relapses within a 24-hour period. You know, many of the partners that I work with know that slips may be a part of the recovery program. We're hoping not, but in case slips are, the addict needs to be honest within 24 hours so that the partner feels like she's getting the truth and she can be part of the process by which, you know, if you love somebody and he is slipping, you can be a part of the team to help figure out what what might you need to feel safer. Like she's doing his work. It is like she is figuring out what does she need to feel safe while he is slipping. Angel also needed her addict to make phone calls every day. She also needed regular polygraphs. She wanted her addict to get a sponsor and talk with the addict frequently. I mean, the sponsor needed to talk with the addict frequently. And I don't know about you, every sponsor works differently, but most sponsors want the addict to do the work. They don't want to have to call and check up on the addict. They want the addict to call them, and then, of course, they'll return calls. She wanted STD testing to make sure she was physically safe, and she wanted the addict to tell his parents that he was struggling so that the parents would have an idea of what she was dealing with and, of course, what he was dealing with. So those are some things that the partner felt was necessary to help her to feel safe and to feel secure and to feel stable. And wow, 
When a partner knows what she needs and she can ask for what she needs, she's more likely to have the kind of relationship she wants with a recovering addict so that they can work together to recreate a relationship that's going to bring truth, honesty, and transparency into the mix. You know, I just recently talked to somebody who said, I can tell when an addict's doing his work because there's a certain amount of openness, brokenness, and humility that exists. And so if you're an addict listening to the show, I want to ask you, when you're having difficulty, do you tend to hide that because you don't want anybody to worry about you? Or are you somebody that's going to say, yep, this has been tough for me, and here's what I'm doing to get the help I need. Patrick Carnes says you need a village to figure out what to do to get healthy with sexual addiction. So I want you to remember that. You're not weak if you need an entire group, a community, a committee of people to help you get to the place where you need to be. As a matter of fact, that's what we advocate through ITAP and also through Absats. We know you can't do it on your own if you think you can. You're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. And, you know, what we do believe is that life is changing really fast, and we've got all sorts of new theories and beliefs. I mean, just this year, the World Health Organization said that they couldn't endorse sexual addiction, but they would call many of the behaviors that fell under that category something called Compulsive Problematic Sexual Behavior. All right, so we got a new name. And that is going to be reimbursed through insurances because it is now diagnosable. That's exciting for our field. We don't care what you call it. We just want people to be able to get help. And then recently, Robert Weiss, PhD and MSW, wrote this amazing book called Prodependence moving beyond codependency. And he really feels like we need to stop pathologizing loved ones who care for addicts, addicts that have drug or alcohol problems, addicts that have sexual addiction. It's time to stop pathologizing our community so that we can actually help them get healthier, but not through pathology, but through understanding. So Rob Weiss, welcome to the show. Well, you know, tell the coach. You're one of my favorite people. So I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, let me ask you something. I mean, truly, you have been working hard on establishing a new language that helps people to understand themselves better. Can you talk a little bit about prodependence? Well, you know, you and I have both been in the field for a long time of addiction recovery, and I've never really, you know, I've been in the field for about 25 years, and one of the challenges that I've seen is that partners and spouses and family members, when it comes to treatment, they tend to come second. And, you know, it's that person who's got the problem. It's the alcoholic. It's the drug addict. They get all the attention. Mm-hmm. And in our field, that's sort of been true, too, because when you look at all of the different models and techniques that have been created for the treatment of addiction over the past, let's say, 30 years. We have many, many new models, many, many new ways, chemical, biological, neurobiological, so many different ways to work with addiction. 
But if you ask me or any professional, what are the different things we've learned about working with families, spouses, and partners of addicts over the past 30 years, we really don't have any new models. And I have seen the model of codependency. I saw it rise in the 80s. I say I dominate the field for a good 30 years. But, you know, we don't really, it's not really a diagnosis. There really is no such thing as codependency. It's not a diagnosis. It's never been formalized. Um, it's sort of a, a cultural phenomenon is what I would call it. Um, but unfortunately, it seems to leave people feeling worse than when they started. And that's a problem for me. Well, it's almost like our therapeutic community said, you know, if you're an addict and you have somebody who loves you that wants to help you, they're as sick as you are. And I know, Rob, that you have said to yourself, been advocating to the community, that loved ones really have special qualities. Um, It takes a lot to love somebody with an addiction. And if they Mm -hmm. have that love for an addict, let's, let's give them a hand up and help them figure out how to make their own life more successful as well as the addict. Well, you know, Carol, we have no, we have a long history in our culture of pathologizing and looking negatively at people who love addicts. Even if you go back to the 1930s and 40s and you look at how partners of alcoholics were described, because um, I did this research when I was looking at all of this stuff, writing pro-dependent, um, partners were called nagging, uh, possessive, guilt-driven, masochistic. Uh, if I was met, if you were married to her, you would drink too. Was a lot of the language that was used in the 40s, all the way through the 50s, and um, you know. And then when we moved to codependency in the 80s, it just feels like it's always felt to me like just another way of saying you give too much, you care too much, you love too much. How can you love too much? How can you care too much? I don't think that's possible. I think you can care in ways that are not helpful. You can love in ways that you're doing the best you can, but it isn't as effective as you'd like. But I see consistently partners and loved ones of, of addicts called nasty names, like dependent or enabling or rescuing. Why can't we just say they're loving people who really care about someone in their life who's kind of falling apart and they're doing everything they can to make it better? Why do we have to say that there's something wrong with them because they're trying to rescue the people they love. This puzzles me. Well, okay, and so let's talk to our listening audience. Most everybody has heard the term codependent, but it is such a big term that many people mm-hmm. don't know exactly what it means. What would you define codependency as? Codependency is a theory of trauma repetition that says that people who get involved with alcoholics and addicts were inevitably going to get involved with a broken person. And then their involvement with that broken person and their willingness to love and care and step in um, often leads to that other person diving into addiction because they feel rescued and taken care of and enabled. And until that partner gets a handle, on how they are acting out their own issues in the addictive relationship, that addiction is going to go on because the partner is as sick as the addict. That's basically what codependency says. Right. And I don't and blame you. You have taken the stand that says 
stop pathologizing that person. They're not as sick as the person with the addiction. And so tell us what well, is I, you know, actually, that... I don't think partners yeah. are addicted, and that is really the big shift. Codependency says I'm addicted to my husband. I'm addicted to my wife. I'm addicted to my child's illness. And I just don't see that. I, what I see is that uh, people love each other. They get attached to their family members. They, they want everyone to be happy and well. And then someone starts to fail because they have an innate problem that starts playing itself out. And that partner is going to twist themselves into a knot, trying to make everything better and trying to make that person heal. We would, under codependency, pathologize that and say, what's wrong with this person? that they are trying to help this addict who's clearly creating so many problems, I would say, why wouldn't you do everything you can to help someone you love when they're failing? Carol, I, I, I want to give you just a quick example, if I may. One of the ways that you know I started out breaking up a little bit, Rob. You are oh, breaking up a little okay. bit. Okay, sorry about so that. If you would, yeah, go ahead and tell me what you think. What did you I'm sorry, let yeah. me know we got lost, and I will talk back. Yeah. Oh, okay. That sounds good. So Rob is going to be calling back, because I don't know if you could hear, but he was breaking up just a little bit. And so I wanted to make sure that um, you heard what you he was You want me to call back? Because if you... No, I think you sound good you... now. So oh, okay. tell us a little Let's bit see. about then what the pro-dependence model is all about. Well, we have moved in this field of psychology to a time where we really value people's attachments, people's connections, people's relationships. I used to think, and I think we were taught, that the more actualized an individual can be, the more powerful, strong, and, and, and the best they, person they can be, that is a sign of how strong they are. And now, I think the field of psychology, in many ways, has moved to, to looking at I am as strong as my connections. I am as strong as my relationships. I am as strong as my community. I am as strong as the people who rely on me and I rely on them. We look at the world and people's strengths as being more to do with their relationships than their individual achievement because we all know that it is in relationship when we are the happiest. So um, pro-dependence simply says if you love someone who is failing due to alcoholism or drug addiction or another addiction, sex addiction, um, you don't have to stop loving them or detach from them for them to get well, um, which codependency says. Um, I'm simply going to say, if you walk in my office, I'm going to say to you, good for you for staying with that person. And it's amazing how much you put up with it. I'm so impressed with all the inventive ways you've created to try to get them sober, even if it hasn't worked. Um, I can see how much you love, care. In other words, I want to validate that person for having stuck with the challenge of living with an addict and not blame them for not knowing how to solve it because who went to high school and learned how to live with an alcoholic? You know, it, it, it's just not something we learn how to do in life. But then when people aren't yeah, doing the absolute, but then when people aren't doing the absolute best and perfect job at helping their addict recover, we have bad names for them. Like they're somehow supposed to know how to do it. Well, and I, can I, I'll give you a very concrete example. And an alcoholic. This would be a, a, a horrible thing for alcohol, in the alcohol treatment. If my partner came in and said, you know, um, the way I've been keeping him from drinking and driving 
he's supposed to get bringing a bottle home every night so he can drink at home because he's gotten three DUIs and he used to drive around with the kids drunk. So at least if I bring the bottle home, I know he'll be home drinking and he's not going to get arrested. He'll be driving drunk with my kids. Now, in your typical codependency scenario, that person would be blamed. How could you bring bottles? That is, you're enabling. You're helping that person drink. But what is that you would be confronted? Under pro-dependence, I think I would say, what a creative and inventive idea, and what a great job you did of not having your husband get arrested again or drive drunk with the kids. It didn't solve the drinking problem, but it was a really clever solution. Let's see if we can come up with some clever solutions to deal with the drinking, rather than saying, what's wrong with you for bottles when you want them to stop drinking. I think spouses well, come with know, all kinds of clever solutions they don't credit for. Very, very positive, and, and that's using positive reframing. And, and then also helping come up with some other alternatives that might be equally as beneficial. Let's talk about sex addiction for a minute, because obviously when a partner loves a sex addict, they have been betrayed. There's been a lot of partner betrayal, and that sexual betrayal fractures a relationship, and yet most partners of sex addicts want to stay with the addict. They realize that they have a compulsive sexual behavioral problem, and as a result, they're willing to do what it takes to watch and see if the addict gets healthier. So if we use Mm -hmm. pro-dependence, what might you say to a partner who walked into your office? Well, I, I, I don't know that it would be very different from what I would say under any circumstances. I can tell you what I wouldn't do. Well, let me tell you. Okay, you got me. I'll tell you what I will do. The number one thing I want every partner of an addict to learn, and I think that in part that's why I'm not a fan of codependency, is that there is an implied message in codependency that you as a partner are somehow driving the problem. Partners already, whether your husband or wife is drinking or using or sexing, we already feel like, gosh, if I'd done it this way, maybe they wouldn't have done that. Maybe they would have stopped drinking. If I, we are all, those of us who are partners of addicts are full of if onlys. And then when you start to explore that partner's issues, you're basically saying to them, well, there are things here that you did to encourage or increase or cause the addiction. And and here's the thing that I want every partner to hear. And I will say this forever. There is nothing that you can do to make me drink. There is nothing you can do to make me sexually act out. I can disappoint you can disappoint me, you can let me down, you can be three hundred pounds, you can do sex whatever it is. But in that moment, it's my decision whether to call my sponsor or drink. It's my decision whether to call my group and get support or go out and have sex with a stranger. Any notion that a spouse is responsible for the addiction of the acting out of the other is what I'm trying to eliminate uh, because I just don't think it's true. And I think it's very easy for addicts as we do all the time to say, Oh, well, if she just would have more sex with me, if she just lost 20 pounds of it, it's, we blame the partner all the time in our desire to get away with what we're doing and not be responsible for it. The last thing a partner needs when they walk into therapy is to look at their part in the problem. I don't think that's helpful. Yeah, I would 100% agree with you. And, you know, one of the things that I know about partners is that they're willing to stay in it 
if they can be kept safe and they get to see that recovery is a continuous progress and and that they are actually working towards restoring the relationship. So yes. obviously, you got to say sex addiction may be a little bit different than drug or alcohol addiction in that one is a process addiction, it's a relationship issue, and one is a substance addiction. I want to ask you another question. Clearly, when it comes to partner betrayal, as, as marital therapists, as therapists in the field, we've been taught, you know what, you, you attract somebody in your life that you actually have to work through your own issues from your childhood. And that is not what prodependence is about, correct? Well, I, I, it is and it isn't. I think there are two different issues on the table. And let me try to divide them up. If I'm actively involved with an addict and I have been suffering because I am that addict's wife or husband or loved one or parent, whether or not I have issues from my past that I need to look at are, un, are, not, are unimportant because there's, you have enough to deal with when you're just looking at that addict who's actively using and what that, that immediate issue has cost. In other words, the desire to look back at the past and say, well, why did I stay in this relationship? Why did I get in, the, in this relationship? Why did I marry an addict? Whatever. Those are interesting questions, but they're not applicable in the beginning. So if I can get a couple past a, the crisis, and to me past the crisis means that sobriety is happening, that person is working on healing, whether it's drugs or other sex, and that they're really in an active healing process. Once the crisis has passed, it's not unusual for a spouse, in my experience, six months or a year in, to say, gee, I'm wondering why I stayed with him, or I wonder why I married him. Or I wonder. But to ask those questions early on is to imply to a spouse that they are somehow responsible. And that is simply unfair to that spouse. And by the way, I, uh, so I did some research when I wrote Prodependence. And I researched about 70 therapists who all were addiction specialists, so all had years and years of experience. And I said to them, do you believe that the spouse of an addict, when they come into your office, any kind of addict, is in a crisis? And 92% of the therapists I surveyed said, yes, we believe they're in a crisis. Well, let me tell you what. Crisis counseling has nothing to do with asking someone to examine their past. It has to do with getting through today, getting through tomorrow, support, validation, None of the things that happen under the codependency model. What I will say to answer your question, though, Carol, is there's a chapter at the end of codependence, my favorite chapter, actually, called Twos Don't Marry Sevens. And really, in there, you're right. We talk about that we are likely to marry or commit to people who have a similar level of emotional functioning to us. And then our stuff is going to come up in the relationship. But I think that's a good thing. I think that if you have some emotional challenges, you get involved with someone else who has some emotional challenges, and you're kind of at the same level, you're maybe you're a two and they're a three, maybe together you can become a six. I don't think there's anything wrong with people who have challenges coming together. You don't need to have the perfect partner. What I do say, and I say this to women all the time, especially single women, if there's any single women listening, listen up. Um, mm-hmm. It's perfectly fine to be it's pretty, I'm making you laugh. It's perfectly fine to go out with somebody who has issues. Just make sure they're aware of them. You know, you don't have to find, if you're single, the man who, you know, never drank, is perfect, never cheated. But make sure they're in therapy. Make sure they've worked on themselves. Make sure they have self-awareness. I don't think there's anything wrong with 
you know, the person that says, oh, I always seem to get involved with an addict. Fine, I'm an addict, thanks. We appreciate it. But make sure that's an addict in recovery. Make sure it's an addict who's been in some therapy. There's nothing wrong. And then you might both grow and grow together. But this idea that we both have to be perfect and self-actualized and find the other partner who's perfect, it just it doesn't work. You're inevitably going to meet somebody with issues. So just make sure that their issues are, are in their awareness. Okay, so let me ask you something because they oftentimes say sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. And in Chapter mm-hmm. 7, you talk about this. Share with our listening audience whether you think that addiction is an intimacy disorder and why mm-hmm. or why not. Um, I've worked in the addiction field for 25 years, and I've also worked in the psychotherapy field for an equal amount of time. And it's become pretty clear to me that, that those people who feel deeply inside of themselves, that that their relationships will be there for them and carry them through when they're having hard times tend to not be people who are addicts. People who are not addicts tend to depend, tend to depend on people. So if I have a bad day and I'm really struggling and I'm really angry and I'm really upset about work, I go home and I kick the chair and I talk to my spouse and I call a friend and I go for a walk and I feel better. But if I'm an addict and I have a bad day, I probably go off and isolate and drink or use to make myself feel better. In other words, addicts tend to depend on a substance or a behavior to soothe them, to calm them, and to make them feel whole when they're upset. Um, healthy people know inside of them that it's their relationships, their connections, their friends, and their loved ones who will make them feel better and help guide them. Addicts almost innately don't reach out, don't ask for help, isolate And in many cases, we see that this goes back to lessons learned very early in life where the people who were raising them didn't teach them that it was safe. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up with a mentally ill parent. So I wasn't, I learned that my job was to keep mom happy and keep the house quiet and not be a big, not be a problem because if I was a problem, mom might go crazy. Well, that's not what children are supposed to learn, how to make sure their parents are safe. (laughs) Children are supposed to learn how to be safe. If you learn growing up that you have to look around you all the time, check to see if you're safe, what's going on in the room. If you grew up in a traumatic environment, what you learn to do is protect yourself and, and nurture yourself, but not in connection to other people because other people aren't safe. So early trauma leads to addiction in that way because healthy people for support, unhealthy people turn to substances and behaviors for support. And it's a great definition, and it certainly does point to the fact that isolation is a major problem for any kind of addiction, but especially sex addiction, and that's why it's a relational problem. You know, Carol, and I absolutely, can I just say I love you a lot and I love your show and I'm so glad you're doing this. <laughs> just a little aside. But, um, w- w- another reason that I speak to this issue is that I-, I notice what we do in both mental health and addiction when we want to heal people. You know, you take an addict or a mentally ill person who at the height of their addiction or their mental illness, I guarantee you, is isolated. And what is the first thing we do in recovery or any kind of treatment? We put them into community. We bring people into a group. We bring them into a center. We bring them a 12-step program. Isn't it interesting that the healing process for addicts involves connection? I, I don't think that's um, uh, casual. I think there's a real reason for that. We 
thrive when we lean into other people and we let them nurture us and we nurture them. Addicts tend to try to do it all by themselves. No, I 100% agree with that. And, and truly, that's one of the things that I love about what you're doing with pro-dependence because there will be people that will be able to, I don't know, attend pro-dependence meetings or attend. Well, I told you, Rob, I said that my um, sex addicts and their partners had a retreat just about a month ago, and they were raving about your book because it depathologized the partner and you know they were I thought maybe you had figured out a way to pass them out at retreats but they all had this book and they were buzzing about it well there is a buzz about it I I, you know I I I really think there are times when something is just ready and I think right now with our focus on relationships connection and growth you know when you look at all of the people who are in vogue if you will as therapists like Brene Brown or Sue Johnson or um or Stan Tatkin, or most of you folks may not know these people, but Carol, I know these as the, as the leaders of our field. Everything that we're talking about these days is about connection, relationship, attachment. We're looking at health as being a communal experience, not an isolated experience. And when you look through that lens, the more I can flood people with connection, love, nurturing, support, whether that is a pro-dependent family member or someone in their community, that's the better they're going to do. And the more isolated they are, the more they're going to struggle. It's just how it works. So have you gotten to talk to Brene Brown to find out what she thinks about this concept? <laughs> well, I sent Dr. Brown a copy of the book. I have not heard back. I think she's a pretty busy lady. Um, but I've uh-huh. heard from some wonderful people. Um, uh, Harville Hendricks wrote some wonderful things about the book. Um, and Dr. Hendricks is a uh, founder of Imago Therapy, one of the leading uh, sort of forces in couples therapy these days. Um, I had a lot of Helen Fisher, who's this famous. I want to tell you, I mean, for our listening audience, Harville Hendricks is probably one of the leading therapists and theorists Hmm. that help you to work on your own issues in regards to relationship. And he said, well, then you need to do a show with him. I would love to. This groundbreaking. So I can help you with that. I will help you with that. (laughs) I would love that. But he said this about your book. He said, the groundbreaking book is a call to awaken from the old way of thinking to find new and positive methods. And, you know, he's the guy that wrote Getting the Love You Want, Getting the Love You Seek. I mean, he and Helen Kelly Hunt are just pioneers Mm -hmm. in the field of relationships. And I thought to myself, my goodness, to have him endorse your book, screams volumes of the need we have to change the way we look at addiction and loved ones. May I just give a little example um, quickly about this issue? I think it might be useful. Um, I opened the book, Pro-Dependence, by asking a question. And I said, if my wife of 15 years, with whom I had three children under the age of 10, were failing because she had breast cancer and we didn't know the outcome. And she was struggling with chemo, wasn't sure she wanted to take it. Maybe this was our second round with breast cancer and she wasn't working. If I worked three jobs and gave up all my recreational activities and gained 50 pounds and became miserable, worried, and upset all the time, my friends would be understanding, nurturing, loving, supportive. They might even bake me a cake. 
But if my wife of 15 years, with whom I have three kids under the age of 10, had an opioid addiction and she was in her third round of treatment, people would question why I stay with her, why I continue to support her, why, why I'm even in the relationship. I mean, I would not get the same response. And to me, that is the stigma of addiction carried over to the partners. Not only do we stigmatize addiction, but partners too. And if you were in a medical situation, that would never happen. Why does it happen with mental health or addiction? It, it doesn't need to. We can get through this without that. Well, and I truly believe it boils down to the stigma of addiction in general. We do not look at that as an illness like we do cancer. And it's time that we recognize that until addicts of any type figure out what they need to get healthier, they don't think they have a choice because they're in isolation. So Mm -hmm. I agree with you, and I love that metaphor because you're right. We look at that totally different, 100% differently. So now, and and both both listening? partners, their motivation, both of those partners, is the same. I just want my loving person back. I just want my relationship back. I just want my family back, and I'll do whatever it takes to get them back. But if it involves addiction or mental illness, we say to the partner, "What's wrong with you?" And I would say, "What could possibly be wrong with someone simply for loving and trying to make their family better?" I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, so now you make a very good point throughout the book that, yes, there are times that perhaps someone who's pro-dependent may not know what to do to really help the addict or even help themselves, and that as professionals, instead of pathologizing, we need to give them a hand up. We need to praise them for their diligence, their loyalty, and their love, And then we need to help them brainstorm what they can do to be healthier individuals. So share with our listening audience some of the things that you might advise partners of sex addicts to do to um, make a difference in their own lives and, of course, the life of the addict. Well, one of the simplest things I think any partner can do that is also one of the hardest, you know, simple but not easy, is finding a peer support group especially for partners of sex addicts, because it isn't just that your husband or wife has been drinking or using. It's that they've been doing something that makes you feel like you're not enough. When someone sexually betrays you, you know, even if you think they have a disorder and that's why they did it, there's always that feeling of, well, if I was younger, prettier, more attractive, you know, they wouldn't have done this. It must be in some way about me. Um, and that, that, that simply has to, that is simply not useful for the partners to be, uh, blaming themselves in that way. Well, and you're right on target there because unfortunately with sex addiction, the central theme for a partner is why wasn't I good mm. enough? What is wrong with mm-hmm. me? You know, why am I unworthy? And so professionals who care about this addiction and want to help partners need to help the partner to figure out that the addiction mm. is nothing about them. But that they're not. But it's wrong. so understandable. That is so understandable because our relationship started with love and sex, and it started with excitement and moonbeams, and you're the best thing on earth. And and now, if you don't want to have sex with me anymore, and you're not interested in me, and I'm not all sparkly and shiny anymore, then maybe uh, maybe I'm doing something wrong, or maybe I'm no longer lovable, or maybe. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that spouses think. And I did want to reinforce the the answer to your question, though, which is 
the more a spouse can get support for him or herself in, with peers, it's so useful. You know, it's so easy for me to say it's my fault. But when you look across the room and you see someone who looks like you, who kind of sounds like you, and this happened to them too, you kind of think, well, they seem like a nice person and they're not so awful and they got hurt and cheated on too. So maybe it isn't just that I'm not good enough. Um, but you're right, Carol. It's much harder for the spouse of a sex addict to not feel personal, take it personally, because cheating is so personal. Oh, 100%. And truly, what we know with addicts is that they have developed a compulsion either because of trauma reenactment or because of a habit disorder that occurred that had nothing to do with the partner at all. And so well, it's important most for addicts to convey that. Were, I was an addict before I ever met you as a partner. You think that, you know, because my addiction flowered during our relationship that it had something to do with you, but I was an addict long before we met. In most cases, you're absolutely right. Now, tell our listening audience how they can get the book. And, I mean, this is one affordable book. You don't need to have $30 to buy your book. Well, that's pretty easy. First of all, if you want more information on codependence in terms of what it would look like to work with someone or what kind of therapist you seek out or what kind of information. If you just want to learn more about the issue, I did set up a website and it is prodependence.com. And you'll see a lot of information, articles, blogs, and all that's free, of course. And, um, and then, of course, uh, all of my work is available on Amazon, so prodependence or look up Rob Weiss. Um, but I do, I deeply believe that if our goal is to help partners um, heal their wounds and help couples grow, that we have to really draw the line at making sure that, you know, let me say it this way. If our goal is to restore healthy functioning in a relationship, and we can do that without leaving a partner feeling like there's something wrong with them, let's go for that. And I think that we can help partners of addicts feel good about the love they've given, feel good about the ways they've given it, even if it wasn't perfect, and then bring them to a better place without making them feel that there's something wrong with them. Well, I 100% agree. And now I'm going to be politically, um, I don't know about, I'm probably going to be politically incorrect here, but I happen to believe that the, that the, the duo, the relationship type that has sometimes the most difficult problem in dealing with their lovers that are addicts are gay men. You know, I work with a lot of gay men that love the addict, and they will do anything. They'll go to the ends of the earth to make it better for the addict. Part, the addict. And so one of the things that I, I really work with them on, because they feel like everything they do is going to make or break that addict. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know that you've, you've had some experience in working with this population. What would you say to a gay or lesbian partner? Well, I, I don't mean to be overly zealous in my own work, but I would say read Cruise Control. I did write a book. It's the only book that I know of on the topic. Um, Cruise Control, Understanding Sex Addiction in Gay Men, because the issues are different all the way around in that community. What is what the importance of monogamy? What is the importance of 
intimacy. How do two men or two women grow to love each other? There's so many issues that are very different in that culture that you really need to be coming from a different perspective, whether you're looking at the partner's issues or the addict. So I would recommend reading something specific to that community because it's different there. Um, Yeah, but I don't think the issues of love or loving a partner or using that love to create healing or to validate that partner for doing everything they could is any different regardless of your gender. Oh, I agree 100%. I do believe, though, that um, maybe the relationship in and of itself, it feels so much more um, intense and sacred Mm -hmm. because of the persecution that Mm -hmm. homosexuals have, have had in the past that they have. They feel like they have more at stake. I don't know. Well, That's here's just how here's a thought for gay partners present. Yeah, when you okay. when you deny people the ability to partner for centuries and you give them the ability, they're going to partner, but it doesn't mean they're going to know how. You know, one of the things that I think you and I have talked about a little bit is um, it's so exciting to see people be able to marry, but heterosexual people have thousands and thousands of years of practice with marriage, and you guys and 42% of your marriages fail. So for homosexuals, they have to figure out how do two men be intimate? How do two men who tend to compete and one-up each other, how do they share equally? How do they support each other? How do two women not get so enmeshed that they stop having sex, gain 300 pounds? You know, how do they stay separate? and individ- Because when men and women together have a certain rhythm, two men together have a certain rhythm, and so do two women. So I think part of what we need to explore is what is intimacy and how do we bring it out in its best light for two men to live together, for two women to live together, and that may look different than what it is for a man and a woman. Oh, that's a wonderful point. Hey, everybody, I am talking with Rob Weiss, who is a Ph.D. in MSW. Dr. Rob. Dr. Rob, congratulations. That happened this year, right? It happened two weeks ago. I finished my two-and-a-half-year dissertation process, and uh, I decided oh. on Dr. Rob because Cause it sounds fun. <laughs> a lot of work. Well, you know, um, I love to learn, and I love to write, and I love to be able to make difficult ideas understandable for people who need to catch on to them. So for me, it is a labor of love. And you know, Carol, that I have my own addiction issues, so Every chance I have to give something away and help people helps me. Um, Doing service is a really important part of the work. And if I can get one person to learn something that keeps them sober or keeps them happy, then that serves me too. So um, I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for you and all you're giving to the people that listen to you. I so appreciate that. So now let's just share the wealth here. You actually have a couple of different podcasts every week. Uh, that are innovative and they really are an opportunity to share information with others. So talk about both of your podcasts and how people can tune in. I only have one at the moment, and it's called Sex, Love, and Addiction. And the one thing I love about podcasts is they're free. So you guys can listen. And by the way, you mentioned uh, some experts. So Dr. Hendricks, Dr. Harville Hendricks and I did a podcast together uh, Dr. Helen Fisher and I did a podcast together. Um, I've been getting many, many experts in the field of sexuality and intimacy to join me. But at the same time, I have just regular people saying, you know, how do I deal with an addiction or how do I deal with a relationship? How do we deal with intimacy and sexuality when addiction is present? 
And on the podcast, we talk about the things that people don't talk about a lot because that's why we're there. And uh, so Sex, Love, and Addiction, we have about 25 episodes. We're going to keep rolling. Yeah. So let me just repeat his podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction 101. Right, Rob? Mm, yeah, 101. We sex and intimacy webinar. And, you know, I know for the longest time you were doing it. Wasn't it in the rooms on Friday night? Well, I still – so um, what I'm trying to do is create a website or a web presence where a community online. So uh, this is something that I have found in in the rooms.com, which is a community of 12 step programs and support. Um, but it's general to addiction. And I, we have a website called sex and relationship healing.com sex and relationship healing.com. That's a mouthful. And we have live drop-in groups where addicts can sit and talk to each other. We're partners. You know, we talked about the value of partners finding each other. Well, we'll have a weekly drop-in group, where anyone who's a partner of a sex addict can just sit and talk for an hour with other partners. I'm trying to create an online environment where that is live, that is active, that is not just find a book or find a therapist, but actually find people who will talk to you. And I think that's where the future is, so that people can go online day or night, wherever they live in the world, and drop into a group or take a lecture. or that, That's the kind of thing that I want to have accessible to people at no charge. Okay, so everybody, you can go to sexandrelationshiphealing.com. That's one way you can get to Dr. Rob. Or what would you say? Would or you in the rooms.com. Okay. Because, of course, and Robert Weiss, Ph.D., is a digital age sex, intimacy, and relationship specialist. And he's, like, reaching out and branching out in all sorts of ways to normalize what we're having to deal with in this culture today. And you know what, Carol? One other thing I want to normalize is, you know, I'm not that special. I'm available. You know, I will sit there for an hour twice a week on In the Rooms or on Sex and Rooms. I'm answering your questions. I'm interacting with you live. Um, you know, you're getting what information you want to get. And, and a lot of it is anonymous. You can ask questions anonymously. I just don't think knowledge should be precious. And I know you don't because you give it away all the time. Well, that is the twelfth step, is it not? That when we've got mm-hmm. when we've gotten some information under our belt and some support, that we pass that on and pay it forward, and that's what you and I both do, and we love that. Mm-hmm. All right. So as we end for tonight, would you share one more piece of wisdom about prodependence so that people can pay it forward, share the book, get it if you don't have it? And start spreading the word that we are changing the culture. If not one person at a it's, time, one no, meeting at a time. It is twelve dollars. It is twelve dollars. Okay. But uh, here, and, and yes, I'm glad you said. Let me tell you what I'm trying to do. I'm really trying to move us on from codependency to a model that is more nurturing, more validating, more kind to partners, but accomplishes the same goal of their growth individually and in the coupleship. And I really appreciate you for bringing it up and letting me talk about it. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so $12. Even though this book says it's fifteen ninety-five, is there a special site they can go to to get it for 12 bucks? Yeah, it's called Amazon. Amazon, they discount everything. I will say this. Oh. I have... 16 five-star reviews on the book, and, uh, and we have been the best-selling book um, in, in uh, substance abuse for almost a month now. 
So it's really seems to be creating a bit of a groundswell, and I'm excited for that. And thank you again. Well, you should be, Dr. Robin. Thank you so much for coming on the show, spending your time. I cannot wait to see where this goes. It's super exciting, and it. Anytime we can depathologize this addiction mm-hmm. and the people that love addicts, you know, we're heading in the right direction. Yes, ma'am. All right. You have a great week. Thank you so much. And everybody listening, you, I hope you know what a blessing you have in Carol the Coach because this is not information that's easily found, and she works hard to dig us up and get us out there. So, again, thank you, Carol. <laughs> Again, the godmother of sex addiction, right, Rob? (laughs) Yes, well, absolutely. Keep working it because it's working. Thanks, Rob. Have a blessed week. Bye for now. Bye for now. All right. Again, I was speaking with Dr. Rob Weiss, and he is a master at digital age sex, intimacy, and relationships. You know, He understands. He's probably the guru in our field about how digital age Internet sex has impacted and affected people's abilities to be isolated and not to be able to connect with a real real person. And so, you know, he just is amazing because he goes to a hot subject, really researches it, talks about it, spreads the word, and then moves forward to something else that's really important. For many of you that may not know, not only has he written Prodependence, but he's written Out of the Doghouse, Sex Addiction 101, and Cruise Control, as he talked about earlier. So get his work. You'll find it fascinating and get Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. It's It's only been out for about six weeks, so get it now while it's hot and share in your 12-step meetings. I am Carol the Coach, and I am so thankful that you are here with me tonight. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. You're worth it. You can make a difference. So let's all work together, because when we work it, it definitely works. Make it a great week.